Good morning, all. We're going to commence our service with the singing of hymn number 704. We plough the fields and scatter. And on this uh, Thanksgiving Sunday, we offer our praises to the Lord for all the good things that we receive on a regular basis, but those that are gardeners, growers, and farmers, well, this is their very special time to give praise unto the Lord. 704, and we'll stand to sing together. Before we come to our congregational prayer, I'd like to read a few verses at the end of Revelation chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. Revelation 4, 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We are reminded here that we are the creature, and our God is the creator who hath made all things. And what a wonderful work of creation he has given. And we trust that today that he will be exalted in our hearts as we lift up our voices in thanksgiving. Let's unite in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the gathering of your people here this morning, and this opportunity to come into your holy presence. We are reminded in these verses of the worship of our God in heaven and how they sing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We come and add our voices of praise today and recognize thee as the creator of all things, the one who had no beginning and has no ending, the one who was before all things, and who has created all things for your glory. And you have created the earth and placed man upon it, and you have given us life and breath and opportunity to live for thee, but all oh, the greatest gift of thy Son. We thank thee that you created a body, that he would be made like unto our bodies, and that he would offer up his own body upon the cross at Calvary. We thank thee for that marvelous work of redemption. We praise thee for the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. And so with thankful hearts and with praise, we lift up our voices and we pray that in our hymns, and in our praying and in the preaching of thy word today, that your name will be honored and exalted. Help thy servant who has come to minister thy word. We thank thee for thy good hand upon him in his travels in Canada, and we ask that you'll bless him here today and in the remaining weeks as he ministers your word we pray for the Spirit of God to be upon him, and we pray that in this meeting we will be very aware that the Lord is in our midst and speaking to our hearts. Lord, we're a needy people. We are small. We are just like the grain of sand on the beach, tossed about when the storms come and vulnerable to so many things. And we need your protection. We need your favor. And oh, we thank thee for those that are born again, that we have the dwelling in us and have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that we will truly know the ministry of the Spirit in our souls as we wait upon thee in this hour of worship. Bless the ministry of this church. Remember, uh, Reverend Saunders today, as he ministers in Winston-Salem, we pray for safe travels for him 
Bless his ministry here and the weeks to come. May the power of God be upon him and upon this congregation. Bless the elders of this church, the deacons, Sunday school teachers, and all who labor for thee here in this congregation. O Lord, come down amongst us. Reveal yourself unto us, and we will give thee our praises. Remember the sorrowing today, those that have lost loved ones, that are carrying burdens, or perhaps have come amongst us with aching hearts. May you come near, Lord. May you just breathe upon each one. We ask this, we pray this, earnestly in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. 708 is our next hymn of praise. Come, ye thankful people, come, raise the song of harvest home. All is safely gathered in ere the winter storms begin. 708.
be seated. We're now going to call on the Reverend Gordon Ferguson to come and read the Word of God, and I'll give him a better introduction, or at least a longer introduction, uh, when he comes to, to preach later in the service, but he's now going to come and uh, read the Word of the Lord to us. And then after that, uh, Mr. McAnally is going to come and bring the announcements. We're going to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and we're going to commence reading at the opening verse of the chapter. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, and reading from the verse 1. As Mr. Golliher is going to introduce me later, I think I'll wait and reply to his introduction uh, later on. So it's John's Gospel, chapter 14, and commencing at the opening verse of the chapter. It's a chapter I'm sure many of you would be able to recite, and I probably could recite it myself, but I'll not stumble through it. I'll put on the glasses and read from the chapter. John 14, reading from verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. We'll end our reading there at verse 14. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his own holy and precious and inspired truth for Christ, our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. We welcome you to the Lord's house today. It is good to see you all on this Thanksgiving Sunday, and we wish the Lord will bless you as you get together with your family, either today or tomorrow, and may you know his presence in giving thanks unto him for everything he has given to us. As Reverend Gallagher mentioned in his prayer, our Pastor Saunders is away today. As many of you will know, this past week was the minister's week of prayer in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
and our pastor was there, of course, and he was invited to stay on this past, for this weekend and to preach there today, and so we remember our pastor as he's preaching there today, and I'm thankful that the men are with us today behind me. We have our Reverend Gallagher and Mrs. Gallagher here today. Now they have moved to the Barry area. We see them more frequently, and it's good to see them here today with us. And of course, Reverend Ferguson is here today as our guest speaker, and I'll let Reverend Gallagher give a proper and fuller introduction in a moment. We also have a few visitors today with us. We have Reverend Ferguson's cousin, Gail, with us today, and a friend. We welcome them today in our service. And we also have, well, we have Mrs. Miss Slade quite often in our service. We welcome her, but we have Mrs. Slade here today. Uh, we welcome her and also her daughter, uh, Debbie, and her son-in-law, Jim. Uh, Jim Blizzard is a pastor there in Florida, and we welcome them today as they're visiting and may the Lord bless them with us today. Also, our visitors online, we don't want to forget you. Thank you for watching. And Lord, you will see an email come up on your screen there. Please send us an email. We would be happy, happy to receive that and to know uh, that you're watching. And if you have any prayer requests, please let us know. As far as the rest of today goes, as usual, at 5.50, we have our pre-service prayer time at 5.50, and everyone is encouraged and welcome to be there. And then at 6.30, we have our evening service, and we look forward to Reverend Gallagher coming tonight and bringing the word for us. 7.30 on Wednesday, our Bible study and prayer time, and Mr. Daniel Siman will be preaching the word on Wednesday. You will notice in the bulletin this last couple of weeks, announcement there for the TBS, the, Toronto, uh, the Trinitarian Bible Society, is having their annual meeting on Thursday in Dundas, Ontario, and the details are in the bulletin if you would like to attend. We're also looking forward to the 30th anniversary of the Port Hope Church. That will be the last week of October from the 22nd to the 27th, and Reverend Ferguson will be the guest speaker for those services, and there will be the series uh, each night, and the theme of the series, the title, is The Life of a True Christian, and so everyone is welcome to attend those services each night at 7.30. If you need a ride, please speak to me. If you'd like to go down, please speak to me. We'll arrange that for you, and what we're going to do for our congregation normally on that Wednesday, it would be our prayer meeting, but we're going to move our meeting from here down to Port Hope, so there will be no prayer meeting on that Wednesday of that week, and we'd encourage everyone to, uh, if you're able to, to go down, especially on that Wednesday evening. And if you're not able to attend any of these meetings, you can look up on Facebook. The Port Hope Free Presbyterian Church has a page on Facebook, and those services will be streamed live each evening. As you know, we have, been, we have mailed out 10,000 postcards to the area around our church, and they went out a week ago on Monday, and we've been praying that they would uh, be a seed to plant into the community. And already we've had a lady come out on Wednesday past to the prayer meeting as a result of that. And also on Thursday, I received two emails requesting Bibles as a result of the postcards. So the Lord is using this ministry, and so I'd ask you to pray on that these postcards would be used uh, to the extension of God's kingdom. I believe that's all the announcements for this time. Let's hand the meeting back to Reverend Gallagher. 
Thank you, brother. We're going to sing again before we invite the Reverend Ferguson to bring the Lord's Word. We're turning to the back of our hymnal to the Psalm 126. When Zion's bondage God turned back, as men that dreamed were we, then filled with laughter was our mouth, our tongue with melody. And this is the mark of God's people when they are in blessing, when they're delivered out of problems and the Lord is pleased to answer our prayer, then we remember to give him all the praise. So let's stand to sing this Psalm 126. seated. We have in our service today Gail Ferguson, and she is a relation of our preacher today, the Reverend Gordon Ferguson. Reverend Ferguson attended the same church where I was converted and worshipped for a while in Oma, Northern Ireland, and then he was called into the gospel ministry and later served in a church in Northern Ireland uh, for 15 years, and then went to London, England to pioneer a new church, served there for 15 years until his uh, retirement, at least retirement date, and then he was called upon to serve as principal of the Whitfield College of the Bible, which he did for approximately five years until the illness until the passing of his dear wife, Anne. And then, since that time, he has been called on to serve as interim moderator 
helping out vacant churches and preaching in many occasions. His pastor of the church where he now attends tells me that I never see the man. He is off preaching most Sundays. And he likes it that way, he told me. Uh, Keep him preaching, he said. And so we are glad that he has come uh, to Canada and he has helped for five weeks during the vacancy of our church in Calgary. And thank you for your prayers for that church. Uh, They just recently had an election of deacons. and There are two young men that have been elected. Uh, They are brothers. They were actually converted in the church about six, seven years ago. And it's great to see how they have grown in the faith and now filling in the gap to serve as deacons in that congregation. And uh, then Reverend Ferguson is... uh, was able to join with us at the week of prayer this week, and then he is ending his ministry in Canada in Port Hope, and then will be returning back to his home in Northern Ireland. So we are thankful that he has come to minister the Lord's Word amongst us, and trust the Lord will bless his own soul. Now, I promised that I would give him a longer introduction, not necessarily a better one. I hope I have covered the bases. He has become a brother beloved, and we certainly have been blessed by his fellowship over this last week, and we get to hold on to him for another 10 days or so before the meetings begin in Port Hope. So thank you, brother, for coming to Canada. Thank you for coming to minister here today, and may the Lord help you and bless you. Well, I do thank the Reverend Gulliher for the very warm word of welcome here uh, to your church in Toronto. I don't often get preaching in such posh churches, uh, and your church is very beautiful, and very beautiful from the, out- from the outside, very beautiful from the inside. And Mr. Gulliher said they would have me for another 10 days. They'll be putting up with me, he might have said, for another 10 days. Nice to meet my cousin, too. Uh, I think she's a first cousin once removed uh, in reality. Um, I think I'm a cousin of her dad, so that sounds bad. Uh, But um, uh, my father was the youngest of eight, and he was 13 years older than my mother, which meant that some of my cousins, my first cousins, uh, not removed in any way, uh, that they were more the age of my mother than uh, my own age. And I only ever met one of them, of the, uh, at least of the Canadian branch. I met plenty of them at home. But I met one, uh, Cousin Bill. Uh, he and his wife came over to Northern Ireland. And so happened my sister was, my youngest sister was getting married at that time. And my father and mother invited Bill and Yvonne to uh, the wedding. And uh, those are the only Canadian cousins that I met. Five years ago, uh, we had uh, a meeting together. Some of the Canadian friends were over in Ulster, and we had a meeting together in Cookstown, where my father came from. And uh, I said to Gail, there were about 70 there, and she thinks there were more. So there was quite a clan. They weren't all called Ferguson, but uh, they were all Ferguson's. Uh, by uh, descent, uh, and uh, that was nice. I was once before uh, in Toronto, my wife and I, 
uh, were here 10 years ago, and Dr. Saunders very kindly asked me to speak at a prayer meeting, and it was nice uh, to be here uh, with you. As uh, Mr. Gulliher has said, my wife passed away some five years ago, and um, she would have loved to be here uh, on this trip, I know. She was a great wife. She was very popular. I always say that uh, people liked her much better uh, than they liked me. Uh, And I'm not being frivolous in saying that. I have absolutely no doubt that that was true. She was a great wife, and she said to me before she died a few weeks that she had no fear of death. She had ovarian cancer. About 11 months from she was diagnosed, the Lord took her home. And uh, I look forward, of course, uh, to seeing her again. Uh, Very beautiful. Uh, I have a picture of her six weeks before she died, and she looks a picture of health. Uh, But I don't want to reminisce too much. One place I always reminisce is where we first lived, uh, in Oma. That's where I got to know Mrs. Gulliher and Mr. Gulliher. And when I'm down around there, I drive around the area, past the house uh, that we first lived in, and uh, uh, there's an expression we use, casing the joint. If the people see me driving around and driving slowly, they may think I'm casing the joint that I'm going to go uh, and raid the house. But I feel very sentimental uh, when I go to that particular area. But I came here to preach, uh, not to reminisce uh, as an old man uh, reminisces. I may say it's nice to see Dr. McClelland. I was speaking to him earlier, and uh, uh, nice to see him here in the church that he has been so much a part of. And I'm very grateful to you for allowing me to preach here today. Uh, My text is found in John chapter 14 and the verse 6. And uh, it reads, uh, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Uh, Shall we unite our hearts together briefly in a word of prayer? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that thy blessing will rest upon us. Help me, O God, in the proclamation of thy truth. Fill me with thy blessed Holy Spirit. And grant, O God, that thy Spirit will be poured out upon us. May we hear what thou art saying. May we say, as Samuel was instructed, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. Answer prayer. Visit us, Lord. Visit us, we pray. We plead with thee. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My text, I repeat it again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. These are beautiful words, and this section of God's Word is often read at a funeral service. Uh, It's a practice perhaps to read to about verse 9 of the chapter and then to read verse 27 where uh, we have a repetition in some ways of the very first verse. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, many Christians, and I'm talking about saved people, draw great comfort from these words. Uh, A loved one is gone, That one was right with God, and they know where that loved one is. Absent from the body, yes, present with the Lord in heaven. Uh, Many people who are not Christians, uh, I mean by that, 
uh, who are nominal Christians but not really saved, they also draw a measure of comfort from these verses. And it seems that nobody takes any exception to verse 6 where it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And yet, verse 6 is a very narrow verse, and it is an exclusive verse. Jesus is saying to us here that you will not find salvation in any other religion, or indeed any religion that excludes him. He is saying that, and we could mention many religions, uh, and these religions uh, cover a large part of the population of the world. Christ says, you will not find salvation in those religions. You'll not find uh, salvation uh, in atheism. You'll not find salvation in good works. Uh, You'll not find, I keep saying religion, you'll not find salvation in the larger hope And you'll not find salvation in burying your head in the sand, as the ostrich is alleged to do. You you cannot pretend that you're not on a journey to eternity. You cannot pretend that you're not mortal. You're going to leave this world, and Christ says to us, except you come by me, except you have me as your Savior, you'll not get to heaven. And there's only one alternative to heaven, and that is hell itself. So in many ways, when you stop to think about it, it is a shocking statement. A former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Michael Ramsey, said that he expected to see atheists in heaven, but Christ didn't. Christ says that he is the only way. And the Apostle Peter, he said the very same thing in Acts 4 and verse 12. He said, neither is there salvation in any other, and it's any other than Christ. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Sometimes we who are Christians, born-again Christians, we are accused of being very narrow-minded. And people say, you think you're the only ones that are going to be in heaven. Well, where does our narrowness come from? It comes from the Scriptures. From the Word of God. The Bible teaches that Christ is the only Savior, and without Him, you are lost. You need to repent of your sins, you need to come to Him. So I repeat this statement in a beautiful passage it is narrow, it is exclusive, and we need to take a closer look at the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way. The truth and the life, no man or no one cometh unto the Father but by me. And the first thing I want us to think about is this. What are the implications if this statement is wrong? What if Christ is wrong? He says, I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But what if Christ is wrong? That's a possibility we want to consider. Then I'm going to look after, I've looked at that point, at the evidence in favor of Christ's statement. And then, to close, I'm going to look at the implications if this statement is right. What responsibility 
does it press upon us? If the statement is right, and of course you will know that I believe it to be right, but if it's right, what are its implications for you and me? So firstly, I'll think about what are the implications if this statement is wrong? Well, one thing we will say is, if he's wrong, Christ may have been delusional. He may have thought he was the only saviour, that he was the only hope for mankind, and he may have been delusional. After all, other people have been delusional. Christ spoke about false Christs arising and deceiving many. And there was a man in England, he's still living, he was a sports reporter with the BBC, his name is David Icke, and he thought And he expressed this, that he was a son of the Godhead. And he had all sorts of strange, new age, conspiracy theory notions. Way, way uh, off the beam. uh, And completely wrong in his views. And I'm saying if Christ's wrong here, he may have been delusional. Or there's another alternative. He may have been deliberately deceitful. The Jewish leaders, after his death, went to Pilate and they said, we know that that deceiver said that uh, if he died, he would rise again after three days. And that's why they asked for a guard around his tomb. He's a deceiver. And what's going to happen is this. His disciples might come and they might steal away his body. He deceived people. And if Christ's wrong, In making this claim, he may have been deliberately deceitful. He may have been delusional. He may have been deliberately deceitful. Or there's another possibility. If he's wrong, he may have been in league with the devil. The Jewish leaders said that he cast out devils by the prince of the devils, Beelzebub. So they said, all these great works he's doing? Well, He's not doing them by his own power. He's doing them by the power of the devil. Remember how the devil approached him after 40 days of fasting, took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all these will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And Christ may, if he's wrong here, he may have entered into a league with the devil to get all the kingdoms of the world. And then he can say, uh, no one can get to the Father but through me. And of course, we may add something more. If Christ is wrong, the Bible is an unreliable book. If he's wrong, uh, the Bible uh, will prove to be an unreliable book because it constantly exalts Christ sets him before us, tells us of his person, tells us of his work, tells us of his death, tells us of his resurrection. Well, if Christ is wrong, the Bible is not to be trusted. You know that a couple of months ago, there was a pride march in Belfast, and someone who was there took a Bible and tore up the Bible in contempt of the Word of God. Well, You do not do that to the sacred scriptures. But if Christ is wrong, then the Bible is untrustworthy. The Apostle Paul, dealing with a slightly different scenario, but with the same implication, said, 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. How unhappy a Christian, a professing Christian is. If the Bible is untrue, and if this statement of Christ cannot be trusted. Indeed, I would say that if we who are professing Christians who claim to be saved and to have Christ as our only Savior, if we were to discover that Christ was wrong, that the Bible was unreliable, I believe that many of us would suffer a very severe mental and in some cases physical collapse. How could you live with yourself? How could you face the future if you thought that Christ was wrong? If you thought that the Bible was wrong and had misled you and caused you to place all your confidence in someone who was delusional or deliberately deceitful or in league with the Bible? How could you face the future? I think that you would be in an awful mental state and some would even contemplate as a result taking their life. But I trust that having put this scenario before you, that your mind and your heart are at bursting point with conviction, this statement is true. Christ who said, I am the way, the truth and the life is speaking the truth. And if you are feeling that way, uh, and, and your heart is, uh, as it were, rearing up, uh, and your mind is rearing up, and you're saying, it's true, Christ is speaking the truth, then I say there is hope for you. There is hope for you. There's certainly hope for you if you're trusting in Christ, but if you're not yet saved, and yet you're saying, I believe what Christ has said. I believe that the Bible is true. Then there is hope for you. But I say to you, if you're not saved, press on to Christ until you know him and know that your sins are forgiven and that you have peace with God. But that takes me to my second point. Uh, We might ask, is there evidence to back up Christ's claim? Let me take you back in time to a period 700 years before Christ came into this world. And I I want to take you to one of the mountain peak chapters of the Bible, especially of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. That chapter was written 700 years before Christ came. And it speaks of Christ. We know that from Acts chapter 8, And the verse 35, when the Ethiopian eunuch uh, was reading from this chapter, Philip the evangelist came alongside him, and Philip said to him, Understandest thou what thou readest? Do do you understand this? And the uh, the Ethiopian, who was the chancellor of the exchequer of Ethiopia, he said, How can I? How can I? Except some man interpret, I need somebody to explain it. And he was reading through the chapter and beginning at the same chapter and the portion of the chapter that the Ethiopian was reading from, Philip opened his mouth and he spoke about Jesus Christ. So he was saying, Isaiah 53, 
speaks of Jesus Christ. And there are many remarkable statements in Isaiah chapter 53. If we go to verse 3, we find that he was despised and rejected of men. And I hardly need to remind you of how Christ was despised and rejected. He was called a deceiver. He was said to be in league with the devil. We find that early in his ministry, after he had spoken of the sovereignty of God, they brought him to the brow of the hill outside Nazareth, and they were going to throw him down that hill to his death. Then we find on another occasion that they picked up stones to throw at Christ uh, when he spoke about his sheep hearing his voice, and uh, he spoke about, uh, again, himself as the way of salvation. They hated him, they derided his miracles, and we find as well, uh, right at the end of his ministry, when he was brought before Pilate, and Pilate offered them a choice between Barabbas, a murderer and a thief, and Jesus Christ, who had performed many miracles on their behalf, stirred up by their leaders, they said, release Barabbas. Pilate says, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified, despised, rejected. He came onto his own, his own received him not. His own were the Jewish people, and they refused him. Then we find that he was numbered with the transgressors, that he made his grave with the wicked. Verses 9 and 12 of Isaiah 53, and how remarkable. When Jesus was brought to trial and then sentenced to death by crucifixion, we find there were thieves. There were transgressors on either side of him. It tells us in verse 12 that he made intercession for the transgressors. And one of the first things Christ did after he was raised up on that cross was to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There he was praying for those who had rejected him and despised him. Uh, then uh, we find as well uh, that he made his grave with the wicked. I've covered that. But also, the next expression is, and with the rich in his death. How likely was that? You cast your mind to that time and to that portion that speaks of Christ's death. Anybody that was nailed to a cross as a malefactor was very unlikely to be buried amongst the rich, amongst the elite of society. It was quite likely that the body would be taken, thrown on the rubbish heap, and burnt to a cinder, as we say. But yet, that's not what happened with Christ. Isaiah writes about it 700 years before, and he says he made his grave with the rich in his death. When he dies, Isaiah is saying, and he's writing, remember, from a standpoint of 700 years previously, he says he's going to be buried amongst the rich, amongst the elite of society. How did that happen? Well, Joseph... A rich man from Arimathea, he came and he asked Pilate for the body of Christ that he might bury it in the tomb that he had cut out for himself. That's strange. 
You see, Joseph was a secret disciple up to this point, and he was afraid of the Jews. Now, if he was afraid of the Jews and of ridicule and persecution when Jesus was alive and performing miracles, how likely was it that he would ask for the body of Christ when Christ was dead, rejected by the nation, and yet a boldness seized upon him. And he stepped forward, and he went to Pilate, the most powerful figure in the land. And he said, I want to bury this man. I want to bury this person in my grave. And Pilate inquired if he were dead. And when he discovered, he released the body, and Jesus was buried in the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had reserved for himself. Most unlikely circumstance. How could Isaiah know that? 700 years before the coming of Christ. He was writing under inspiration. The Bible is absolutely true. It also speaks in Isaiah 53 about Christ prolonging his days and seeing his seed and the pleasure of the Lord prospering in his hand. How again could that be? Only by resurrection, by Christ rising from the dead. So there it is, so much written aforehand uh, by Isaiah. But let me take you back another 300 years. And let me take you back to uh, the Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, uh, we have a Psalm of the Cross. It begins with the first words. Uh, Oh no, not the first words, but the words that Christ spoke on the cross in the midst of three hours of complete darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In verses 7 and 8 of the psalm, we read of the people passing by the cross. Uh, The cross is not mentioned, but they're passing by, and they're saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's chosen of God, let him save himself. A thousand years later, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, they quoted almost word for word the words of Psalm 22, mocking Christ. He saved others. Let him save himself if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. How did David know what the crowd would say as they were standing at that cross? David knew because God told him what was going to take place. Then we find in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. That speaks of Christ crucified. In John chapter 19, verse 37, it says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Pierced. Crucifixion was not used by the Jews. It was not practiced in David's time. And yet a thousand years before Christ's coming, the crucifixion scene is set before us. The nails driven through his hands, the nails driven through his feet. Then there's something I think perhaps even more remarkable. They parted my garments among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. That's in verse 18 of the chapter. In Psalm 22, that is. Well, those words are quoted in John 19, 
verses 23 and 24. Now, the persons who who did this gambling over Christ's seamless robe were Roman soldiers. They didn't know the Bible. Nobody was controlling them. They were acting freely. And yet acting freely, gambling after parting some of the garments of Christ. You take that garment, you take that garment, you take that one. Four of them got garments. And then they look at the seamless robe and they think, well, if we split that, it's ruined. Uh, We can't tear it into four sections. So uh, let's cast lots. Let's gamble over it. And there they were, all unconscious that they were fulfilling a prophecy that had been written a thousand years earlier. Does that not prove to you the reliability of the Word of God? People look at horoscopes that are in the papers. I think every British newspaper has a horoscope. Now, I never read them. Uh, I, I would feel wrong. I would feel guilty uh, reading such rubbish. But there was one man who wrote in a newspaper, the Daily Mail. It's one of the tabloid newspapers that we have in the United Kingdom. And there was a lady, she was married to uh, one of our political leaders at the time, and she said that she got great help from the horoscope written by this man. Now, it turned out he had written a horoscope for the very day he died. And that lady said that she felt in reading what he had written for the star sign under which the man lived and died, that he had some premonition of his own death that he was referring to death in it. Someone very cleverly wrote and said there were at that time 600 million people that had the same star sign and they didn't all die. So that's how unreliable the horoscope is. Uh, You get old Moore's Almanac and you get all of these things, vague predictions. But here in the Bible, and we're only quoting two places, you have most accurate predictions, most accurate prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you see the accuracy of the prophecy and the exact fulfillment of that prophecy, you say, the Bible, the Bible is true. The Bible is true is the Word of God. And the Bible focuses on Jesus Christ. What did the angel say when Christ was born? A remarkable birth. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Forty days later, an old man held that child in his arms. He was two days short of being six weeks old, And the old man, Simeon, spoke to God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all Israel. He's he's looking at a baby, a child of less than six weeks old. And he says, that is my salvation. That is my hope. For eternity. Yes, how remarkable this child is. And what a life he lived. A life without sin. He said, I do always those things that please him, speaking of his father. 
and his father looked upon him at his baptism. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And sometime later, at his transfiguration, his father said the same words. Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ. He had been in the company of Christ for three years. And then, feeling that Christ was not going to be an earthly king, he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Remorse struck him. He threw down the money in the temple and he said, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. It's a great testimony to get from a traitor. A traitor. And he says he's innocent. He hasn't sinned. He didn't deserve what I did to him. Peter, who knew him and was very quick to speak up for him, Peter said that he did no sin. He observed him closely. He did no sin. The Apostle Paul, who was once his bitter enemy, and was saved in the Damascus Road, he said he knew no sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was pure and holy. And that is significance. Because in Jeremiah 23 and verse 6, in capital letters, one of, I think, only two expressions Uh, In full capital letters, in our translation, it says, The Lord our righteousness. When Christ lived, he lived for his people to provide us with a perfect righteousness. You say, well, how could the righteousness of one uh, be supplied as righteousness for a vast multitude that no man can number? Well, then I'll I'll put a question to you. How, How could one man feed 5,000 men plus women and children with five barley loaves and two little fish. He's God. That's how he could feed the multitude. How he could feed the 4,000 plus women and children. 4,000 men, that is. He did it because he's God. He could multiply that bread. And his righteousness is of infinite value. And it supplies for every one who trusts in him, a righteousness that enables them to be accepted. They are accepted in the beloved, as Ephesians says, and I enter heaven as if I had lived a perfect life. My wife entered heaven as if she had lived a perfect life and had never sinned against God. But then, of course, we know that Christ died, and I'll come to that in a moment or two, to blot out the sins of those who trust in him. Think of his power. He cleansed the lepers. He gave sight to a man that was born blind. He fed the hungry. He calmed the storm. When he calmed that storm, his disciples were amazed. They said, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then later on, he walked on the sea, and they went further. They they fell down before him. They worshipped him, and they said, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. If I may just make a little pause here. I spoke about the narrowness of Christ's statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But now I'm broadening it out, because I'm showing you someone, someone who is so great, so so vast and glorious, infinite in perfection, 
from eternity to eternity. The one who knows everything. Isn't that a vast resource for salvation? When you think of Christ, the narrowness disappears into the breadth of the greatness of Jesus Christ. In Job we read, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty to perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou know? Deeper than hell, what canst thou do? The measure thereof is longer than the earth, and it is wider than the sea. God is vast, and Jesus Christ is God. So it's not a narrow person. It's a a person who is almighty, infinite in glory, and infinitely able to save the lost. And the Lord Jesus Christ not only walked in the Sea of Galilee, but he also raised the dead. You and I couldn't do that. There's three raisings mentioned. There may have been many others. One was dead for four days. His sister didn't think he would rise on that occasion. She said, he's dead for four days. By this time he stinketh. Christ called out, Lazarus, come forth. And uh, Lazarus came forth bound hand and foot. How almighty is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what shall we say of his death? He died, it says, for the ungodly. We deserve to die. We deserve to die because we are sinners. We deserve to be in hell because of our sins. But Christ died for sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. So he lived a perfect life for those who trust in him. And he died an atoning death, shed his blood for those who would trust in him. And we can say upon a life, I did not live. Upon a death, I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That's what I'm staking my future on. When I stand before God, not because I am a preacher, not because I'm a good person and I don't see myself as a good person. I'm a sinner. I stake my hope on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Joseph Hart said, that Christ bore all incarnate God could bear with strength enough but none to spare. That's a great statement. He says it, it, it took all the, uh, the resources and power of one who is a part of the Godhead, one who is equally God with the Father and equally God with the Holy Spirit. It took all that he could do. It pushed him to the limit to deal with sin. Remember how he sweat great drops of blood? How in Gethsemane he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. How an angel came and strengthened him. How he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yes, Christ was pushed to the limit to deal with sin. And how can anyone escape who rejects Christ and bypasses Christ Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, said, God in the person of his Son hath all his mightiest works outdone. And in the Greek liturgy, we have a great statement. A great statement. It speaks of Christ's unknown sufferings. His unknown sufferings. We have no idea how much Christ suffered. 
Sometimes when I'm facing difficulties and trials and fears, I say to the Lord, how? How did you go through with it? How did you go to the cross? Knowing what you had to face. It is awesome. It is awesome. And it shows us the awfulness of sin and the enormity of the price that Christ, God manifest in the flesh, had to pay. But the glorious news is he paid the price in full. He said it is finished. And he rose again. It's been called the best attested fact in history that Christ rose from the dead. An American journalist wrote a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. His name's Joyce McDowell. He's 84 years of age now. And Joyce McDowell was a skeptic. He wasn't a Christian. He was a scorner. But he set out to disprove the resurrection. And he felt he had to be fair. And so he took in all the evidence and he became totally convinced that Jesus Christ rose again on the third day and he wrote that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Yes, when I said it all before you, Jesus Christ is God and his claim, his exclusive claim, his narrow claim is a glorious claim. And I come briefly to my last point, the implications, if this statement is correct, and it is correct. Jesus is the only way. The Bible is true. I was going to quote some statements, uh, and uh, for sake of time I will forego, apart from one, an atheist by the name of Dr. Carl Sagan. Uh, now, this man didn't believe the Bible, but he made a statement that I want you to think about. He said, the the odds against the the most simple forms of evolution are one in ten to the power of two billion. Uh, You say, well, what does that mean? Well, he said it would take 6,000 books of 300 pages each just to set out the odds against the simplest forms of evolution. That means 1,800,000 pages just to write out the odds against the simplest forms of evolution. I sometimes, when I visit a zoo, say, you've clear evidence that there's no such thing as evolution. To think the giraffe there, that we're somewhat related to the giraffe, or or related to the the monkeys even, uh, or related to the lions, uh, that that we're all derived uh, from the same source. Well, God made them all, but evolved from the same source? Never. Never, we would say, in a million years. The Bible is true. Now, the Bible tells us that Christ is our creator. Without him was not anything made that was made. Creatures, mountains, sun, moon, stars, without him was not anything made that was made. It tells us in Hebrews 1 that he upholds all things. So everything's held in place by Christ. And it also tells us that Christ, the one who came into this world, the one who made this exclusive claim that he is to be our judge. Acts 17, verse 31. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, 
whom he hath ordained. And it says he has given witness in that he hath raised him from the dead. So it's only Christ. Christ is the judge. He's able to save because he's God. He can save to the uttermost. And he's the only Savior. There's no other. There's no salvation in false religion. There's no salvation in atheism. And instead of being offended by Christ's claim, we should be awed and amazed that one so great should be willing to stoop so low to save so sinful and so unworthy creatures such as we are. John Newton said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He can save people from every kind of religion. He saves them out of it, of course. He can save the atheist. It's a glorious statement. He's able to save. May I say he's willing to save? He's willing to save. He says, come. Come unto me. He doesn't drive us away in spite of our sinfulness. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And right at the very end of the Bible, we have the last invitation to come to Christ. And it's Revelation 22 and the verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. What a glorious statement. What a glorious person is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, We preach not ourselves. We preach Christ crucified. Yes, I set Christ before you. I set his statement before you. And I say to you, if you're not saved, come. And I say, if you're a child of God, rejoice and give your life completely into his hands. For good or ill that may befall you, give your life completely into his hands. And one day, one day if you're saved, You'll be absent from the body, and you'll be present with the Lord. Let's stand and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. As we part from one another, speak to our hearts. Help us to surrender our hearts to thee. Bless thy people. Lead us on with thyself. Bless those who know thee not. May they taste and see that the Lord is good. Separate us in thy fear with thy love and thy blessing. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
to find out, do I go to the door? Who am I looking for? I do. Right, I'll do that. Thank mm-hmm. you.